Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. I'm pleased to welcome Jonathan Shanzer to the show today to talk about his very important new book, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days of War. Dr. Jonathan Shanzer is a Senior Vice President for Research at the Foundation for Defense of Democracy in Washington, D.C. He previously worked as a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury, where he played an integral role in identifying and eliminating terrorist financing. Shanzer's earlier books included Al-Qaeda's Armies, Middle East-Affiliate Groups, and The Next Generation of Terror, which was the first book to explore the Al-Qaeda franchises in the Middle East. Jonathan Shanzer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, John, what was the urgency? Why was it so important to get this book out as quickly and very quickly following the Gaza conflict? Uh, good question. Um, I, I watched this war, uh, these 11 days of, of conflict in May, closer than I had watched any of the other previous conflicts. This is, of course, the fourth uh, Gaza war since 2009. Um, I, I don't think that this was any more important than the previous three, but I did have an opportunity to watch it closer than I had the previous conflicts. And I think that is really largely due to the available technology um, that I was able to watch it on my smart TV, uh, follow Twitter and other social media feeds, watch cable news. And I was able to do it all sort of in one place. And what I began to realize was that, that um, you know, that there were just vast discrepancies between what was being reported, what was being analyzed here in the United States and what I was watching on TV and reading about in the region. And I'll just say that, of course, I'm referring to Israeli TV, but also Arabic television, watching Al-Arabiya, watching uh, uh, Palestine TV um, on my smart television, I was able to really do that comparison. And, you know, a lot of people talk about bias in coverage. I don't think that begins to cover the huge discrepancy that I witnessed. Um, people talk about fake news. I don't believe that this was fake news. I'm not sure that's even helpful as a description. What I would say is that the editorial choices made by Western outlets really reflected a vapid understanding of what happens during these wars. And um, when the war was over, I sort of took a weekend to take a deep breath and to relax a bit. But I realized I, I just wasn't done. So I set about writing the book and in fact, um, wrote the first draft in, um, 
in eight days. Um, it was 120 pages long, certainly not the full book and certainly not with all the footnotes and everything else. But um, when that was done, I went to Israel for 10 days, interviewed as many people as I could that were relevant for the topic, came back and edited, but all with the idea of getting it out quicker than all of the others that may come after um, with the ultimate goal of sort of setting the edge for the debate, um, trying to set the record straight early and hopefully prompting some kind of a discussion about the many failings I saw during this war. For our listeners who may not be intimately familiar with the geography and contemporary history of the Middle East, give us the Cliff Notes version of Gaza and uh, particularly of the Muslim Brotherhood, which Hamas was originally a part of. Sure. So I think it's probably worth noting that, um, so you've got the Muslim Brotherhood. It, it emerges in the late 1920s in Egypt. Um, it is an organization that um, very quickly gained adherence across the entire Middle East. Um, today, it's either the first or second largest Islamist group. Um, the Islamists like to uh, mix politics and religion, which is something that a lot of the monarchies don't appreciate in uh, the Middle East. But then there's also the ultimate target of the Muslim Brotherhood. It has um, expressed vitriol towards uh, Western culture, so the United States and Europe, um, but also it harbors deeply anti-Semitic and often violent sentiments um, in terms of minorities and non-Muslims in the Middle East. And so in terms of its manifestation in Gaza and ultimately through the Hamas organization, which I suppose will be the focus of our discussion today, in the late 1980s, there was an organic uprising that began in the Gaza Strip. This is a Palestinian area um, where there was a um, it was a traffic accident, actually, between the Israeli Defense Forces and uh, a group of people coming home from work uh, at the end of a long day in December 87. And uh, they had been working inside of Israel. The traffic accident um, led to several deaths, Palestinian deaths, and, and the, the funerals led to protests. And the protests quickly spread across the Middle East, or rather across the, the, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And across the Middle East, there was a, um, a sense of trepidation that this might set off some sort of new awakening, if you will. And um, it led ultimately to the rise of a group called Hamas. This is a splinter group of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was a decision taken by the leaders to engage in overt violence against Israel. And this was what is now known as the First Intifada. And the First Intifada raged through the early 1990s and um, ultimately helped Hamas gain a foothold inside the Gaza Strip. Um, they didn't conquer it until 2007, but they have long viewed the Gaza Strip as a stronghold for this terrorist organization. Before we get to the conflict of May 2021, let's talk a little bit about internal Palestinian politics, uh, because that's important as well. There are two major political parties among the Palestinians, Hamas and Fatah, 
One governs in Gaza, the other the West Bank. Tell us about the similarities and differences between the two parties and how there can be talk about negotiations with Israel for a two-state solution when the Palestinians are physically divided and disagree strongly over their own leadership. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. I wrote a book about it back in uh, 2008. Uh, it was called Hamas versus Fatah, the struggle for Palestine. And it was really, I think, uh, for me, a clarifying moment as I began to understand the deep, deep divisions that exist between uh, the Palestinian factions, uh, Hamas and Fatah. Um, and those divisions exist to this day and I think represent probably the greatest obstacle to a two-state solution, as I think you intimate here. Um, the the story actually begins with the rise of uh, Hamas in the Gaza Strip, as I just mentioned, in the immediate aftermath of the eruption of the first intifada. Back then, the PLO, or the Fatah faction, then I, I will really describe them um, the same way. I mean, they are the Fatah faction is the PLO and vice versa. Um, but this leadership is actually based in Tunis, in Tunisia. They had been uh, kicked out of Lebanon, where Yasser Arafat had launched a war against Israel. The Israelis uh, ejected him and sent him into exile. And so as the Palestinians are out on the streets agitating for independence back in late 1987, early 1988, um, they're really, uh, the PLO is on the sidelines. They're on the outside looking in and they are desperate to uh, supplant Hamas, which is rapidly growing into the dominant force on the ground during this uprising. And so it's at that moment that Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO and the Fatah faction, um, decides to launch um, an initiative that would gain him recognition on the world stage, but he's only able to do so by recognizing the state of Israel. And thus begins the Oslo peace process. And really throughout the 1990s, we saw this really interesting dynamic during which Hamas is carrying out suicide bombings and other brutal acts of violence. And I would say the media, generally speaking, described that as just an effort to kill as many Jews or Israelis as possible in Israel, uh, an effort to destroy the state. But of course, that was never really something that Hamas would be able to achieve. What they were actually trying to do is to disrupt this peace process and to undermine le the legitimacy of Yasser Arafat and the PLO. And this basically is the dynamic that has continued until this day. There is a civil war actually that erupted between the PLO and Hamas in 2007. Um, Hamas basically overtook the, the Palestinian Authority, the interim government, uh, by force in the Gaza Strip in 2007. They shot people point blank. They pushed people off of tall buildings. Um, I, almost 200 people died during that war of 2007. And in the end, Hamas now controls the Gaza Strip. It is the sovereign, if you will. And the PLO clings to power in the West Bank. And so what we have are two separate Palestinian statelets, either one of them recognized by the UN, 
neither one of them a fully functioning state, but they are under two different governments. And when one talks about the two-state solution, it really ignores the fact that there are, in reality, two statelets and one state. And they don't agree. It is really something of a triangle that is not really conducive to a two-state solution. And yet, this is what we continue to hear from our State Department here in Washington, this idea that we're, we should be working toward a two-state solution when, in fact, the Palestinians are bitterly, bitterly divided. All right. So let's, now we're, we've got a little bit of the history. Let's move on to 2021. Uh, it, uh, but just to be clear, uh, because sometimes when we take a retrospective view of any war, uh, the view exposes tensions and missteps and errors, which are often judged to have led to war or have provoked war. So just for clarity's sake, let's agree on a single definition. When does war start? <laughs> so war begins when bullets fly. War begins when rockets and missiles and bombs go off. That's when war begins. Um, at least that's when it officially begins. Of course, you have Palestinian factions like Hamas that have been at war with Israel from its inception. So in other words, since 1987, when Hamas first emerged, they declared war against Israel. So they've been in a constant state of war with the Jewish state. But in this particular case, this um, this flare up in violence, um, it began when Hamas rockets began flying out of the Gaza Strip toward Jerusalem. Now, I, I think I going to intuit why you asked that question. And that is because in the media, it was described at the time that there was a real estate dispute in Eastern Jerusalem that uh, had provoked the war, that had started the war. And the real estate dispute in question, I mean, first, maybe I should just say real estate disputes don't cause wars, rockets and guns cause wars. Um, but the the real estate dispute in question was was really fascinating. And, and a, I think a study in the failure of Western media, the media writ large, looked at this real estate dispute. It's in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of Eastern Jerusalem, just outside the Damascus Gate. And for listeners who've ever stayed at the American Colony Hotel, um, that's basically the neighborhood that we're talking about. Um, and the real estate dispute in question actually dated back decades. It actually starts before the founding of the state of Israel, where Jews buy property in Eastern Jerusalem. They live there until the 1948-1949 War of Independence. That war led to a Jordanian victory in that particular territory, and the Jewish inhabitants were evicted. And they were not able to live on their property until after the 67 war, the 1967 Six-Day War, which Israel won and through that war conquered Eastern Jerusalem again, or as the Israelis would say, uh, they reunited Jerusalem. But rather than evicting the Arab residents there, a legal dispute began. 
and that legal dispute has wound its way through the Israeli courts. And we were about to get a ruling just before the war broke out. And it was at that point that the media began to point to this dispute as sort of the reason why tensions were flaring all around the region. Now, what is so, I think, harmful about that narrative is that a, you know, it was Ramadan, it was Jerusalem Day. There were lots of other things that you could say had raised the temperature um, in terms of tensions in Jerusalem. But really, the decision by Hamas to start firing rockets, I think, stemmed from a very different dispute. And I get into it in the book. Um, but we've already talked about the tensions between Hamas and Fatah. What is so important to understand and what was so ignored by the media in the run-up to the war was that there were elections that were set to take place. Now, you have to remember that Palestinian elections don't happen very often because the two factions that we mentioned, Hamas and Fatah, have been fighting for as long as they have. They've not been able to agree on a political system that they could both work with. And... Um, in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords, if you'll recall, this was the normalization agreements that were reached under the Trump administration in the fall of 2020. Um, there was a realization among the Palestinian factions, among both of them, that they were losing the Arab street, the, the hearts and minds of the Arab world, that if Morocco and Sudan and Bahrain and the UAE would all join hands with Israel, then perhaps they were doing something wrong because the Palestinians had been at the heart of the Arab narrative for years, for decades. And so um, they decided to move forward and hold elections. And in the beginning, the Trump administration, I don't even think acknowledged the fact that this was, you know, even announced after that, um, when the Biden administration came in, they the the White House actually embraced these elections, and it was a really dangerous move, um, in my view. And I actually shared those sentiments with some Biden administration officials, saying this this is something you don't want to do, guys. Primarily because Hamas was set to take part in these elections, and if Hamas won even any seats, it would it would mean that a terrorist group was part of the governing structure. And there are actually laws in the books here in the United States that stipulate that if Hamas takes part in any Palestinian government, that it would trigger a cut in funding, it would trigger a cut in diplomatic relations. And this was just something that I thought was just very destabilizing. And ultimately, I think the Israelis weighed in, and so did some of the pragmatic Arab states. Um, and it led to the cancellation of those elections. But you have to remember that Hamas was already ready to take part. They were looking forward to being welcomed as legitimate players in the Palestinian political scene. And so they were furious when they were denied the opportunity to, can, to take part in these elections. So um, in my view, it was in the immediate aftermath of the cancellation of those elections that Hamas realized that if it was not able to compete politically, that it was going to compete militarily. And it began this conflict as a means of winning back the hearts and minds of the Palestinian people, and perhaps even some from the Arab world, 
a demonstration that they were engaged in, you know, military resistance, as they would call it. And so I believe that that canceled election was likely the true cause of the war, or at least the contributing factor, the trigger for Hamas's decision to begin firing those rockets, which, of course, is when war began. So uh, what you're saying is Hamas's attack on Israel in May 2021 was opportunistic. Oh, absolutely. And Hamas is an opportunistic terrorist organization. It always has been. It's a blend of nationalism and religious fanaticism and populism. And and so I believe that this was the moment that they wanted to try to seize the narrative um, to demonstrate that they were the true leaders of the Palestinian cause, not the PLO or the Fatah faction that is uh, in control of the Palestinian Authority government. So that was their way of changing the story, of flipping the script, so to speak. And um, it's interesting because today um, we continue to see that the United States and the Israeli government are working overtime to try to breathe new life into the Palestinian Authority. There is, I think, a fear in both Jerusalem and in Washington that Hamas has seized this initiative, that they look stronger, that they look more in control, and they, um, they're they working now to try to rehabilitate the Palestinian Authority, which really does look um, a bit tired, a bit... Um, it lacks direction, it lacks leadership. And so there's an effort to try to resuscitate the Palestinian Authority. I don't know if it will work, but um, they're doing this as a reaction to what can only be seen as a victory by Hamas during that uh, 11-day conflict back in May. Well, that's how it looked right after the conflict. But uh, a recent New York Times article by Patrick Kingsley observed that uh, nothing much has changed in Gaza, uh, despite the Hamas having declared victory, it, and the bump in popularity that they won in the polls uh, after declaring war, according to this article, was no longer there. So, despite the failure to make gains, this pattern of conflict, ceasefire. Uh, and nothing changes, it seems to be repeating every few years. What's the point from their point of view, from the Hamas point of view? You know, it's a great question. And I, I mean, one of the things that I do highlight in the book is that these conflicts are utterly, utterly predictable. Um, you know, it, it, you could start with when the ceasefire from pick your war, right? There've been four wars so far. What happens is, uh, when the war ends, Hamas begins to replenish their rocket stores um, and to get ready for another round of war. The preparation uh, for war with Israel is constant for Hamas. And so we see that taking place today, uh, much as we did before the last round of, uh, of violence, much as we saw back in 2009, 10, 11, 12. I mean, it is, it's, you know, this is Hamas's raison d'etre. Right. They exist to fight Israel. It's in their charter. But so they replenish those rockets. And as they do, Israel watches the Gaza Strip 
very carefully. They have what I would call intelligence dominance in the Gaza Strip. Their eyes and ears are everywhere. And they begin to collect targets, legitimate targets, pursuant to the laws of war. Um, They do this with lawyers. They do it with the Israel Defense Force. They do it with the Shin Bet, their internal security service. And so they build up this target bank in preparation for the next round of conflict. Then at a certain point, um, Hamas starts firing rockets. Now, I should just note that Hamas fires rockets on a somewhat regular basis. Every week or two or three, there's another one-off rocket, some kind of an attack that takes place. Israel absorbs most of those. In fact, Israel doesn't want conflict with Hamas. It's for Israel's, you know, time and effort, it's not worth it's not worth the battle. Um, they don't want to conquer the Gaza Strip. They don't want to um, occupy it. They actually would rather it just exist and leave Israel alone. But that's not what happens. And so ultimately, Hamas triggers a full war, either by firing on Jerusalem or by, um, in some cases, you know, uh, carrying out direct attacks against civilians or against the IDF. Um, but ultimately, they find a way of triggering a deeper conflict. It's at that point that Israel responds and they respond by tar- by hitting that target bank that I mentioned, and and that's actually, I think, an interesting point as well. That you know, when the war erupts, whatever war it is, the media here in the U.S. really make it seem like this is a war that Israel is fighting out of anger, when in fact it is. I mean, it's just rote at this point. They begin to shoot those targets that have already been legally approved. And they do it surgically, and they do it in a in a way that is almost automatic. And um, there's not a lot of emotion that goes into this. It's I mean, the Israelis, unfortunately for them, have just had too many experiences with this, and they just go about their business. Um, but it, it's really not one of those angry things, um, which is I think how this is often described poorly in the West um, that Israel is you know trying to carry out as much damage as possible to make Gaza pay, I actually would contest that um, 100%. They are looking to take out Hamas targets, but to try to leave the rest of the Gaza Strip intact. Um, and that is the purpose. Now, when the, um, when the target bank begins to deplete and Hamas begins to run out of its weapons, that's when a ceasefire you know, begins in earnest, or at least the talks for a ceasefire. Ultimately, the ceasefire is agreed to, brokered by the United States, or in this case, Egypt. Um, And then, you know, Hamas begins the process of rebuilding for another war. And that's where we are today. Now, you asked, what does Hamas get out of it? Um, They, by just surviving these wars, they win. In other words, they were not defeated by Israel. They were not vanquished by Israel. They were not utterly destroyed by Israel. And so therefore, they survived against a strong regional power. They will live to fight another day. And they were engaged in what they term as resistance. This is the message that they like to send. Um, The people of Gaza, I should say, are fairly miserable as a result of this. Every couple of years, 
their tiny enclave on the Mediterranean gets destroyed and they have to rebuild again. And it's all because Hamas decides to engage in these conflicts that do not have any chance of victory. Well, since you mentioned uh, the misunderstanding, uh, misinterpretation of the Western media uh, about Israel's motivations, that they are not as angry as they're portrayed, let's talk about that a, a little more and talk about proportionality. That was a word that was repeated constantly and broadly during those days of, of war. And, and I'd like you to explain the idea that it's somehow unfair for more casualties to be suffered by the aggressor who initiated the conflict than by those defending themselves. Yeah, this is a, um, that's a theme, uh, undoubtedly, that comes out of um, mainstream media during these conflicts. Um, in this most recent round of conflict, there were a little more than 200 people who were killed on the Palestinian side. And of course, every um, casualty is a tragedy. You don't like to see loss of life. You don't like to see death. Um, but what I would actually note is how remarkable it is that only 200 people died during this conflict, given the sheer amount of um, ordnance that was flying in both directions. I mean, Hamas fired more than 4,000 rockets into Israel. Israel, as I understand it, fired back something like three times that in terms of precision munitions, targeting Hamas and, and what it deemed as military targets. Um, of course, there were mistakes that Israel made that, that certainly led to some um, uh, casualties on the battlefield. Uh, involving civilians, I would say that the vast majority, that was not the case. Uh, the vast majority of what was hit was, in fact, military um, in nature. But um, what's so interesting is that the reason why the casualty count was low on the Israeli side was because of this miraculous technology that it deploys for missile defense. It's called Iron Dome. And Iron Dome shoots down somewhere between 90 and 95 percent of the rockets that Hamas fires into Israeli airspace. And what Iron Dome does, and I, I think people don't quite realize this, but it it gives the um, Israeli military, it gives the Israeli war planners the time and space to make decisions that is that, that are not based on emotion, that are not based on anger. In other words, even as Israel is coming under massive rocket fire, the people of Israel are largely safe, not entirely. Some rockets do get through, but the vast majority do not. And you see these rockets exploding in the air. They're intercepted or in many cases, they overshoot or undershoot their intended target and they will explode in the desert or they will actually explode in the Gaza Strip, not even reaching Israel. Um, but Iron Dome gives Israel the time and space that it needs to fight a war without the fury. And um, that time and space actually translates to, I believe, fewer casualties, not only in Israel, but also on the Palestinian side. 
And and that's something that I think just is not fully understood. We even saw some members of Congress trying to defund Iron Dome in the aftermath of this war, which is a, an insane proposition that what they would like to see is more violence um, or more death in future conflicts. And that's just a terrible message, I think, to send to the region. Uh, but at any rate, um, what ultimately happens in the media coverage is that Israel is blamed for disproportionate casualties. In other words, there were just a handful of Israeli deaths and, and injury um, during this 11-day conflict. And then you compare that to the 200-plus Palestinians that were killed and the many others that were injured. And you know you have people begin to say, well, look, Israel is clearly the aggressor because look at the casualty count. And that just ignores the fact that um, Iron Dome is doing its job, that Israel is just better equipped to defend itself. And it also ignores the fact that Hamas, is its intention is genocidal at the end of the day. It is firing unguided rockets into civilian territory with the hope that it will just hit something of value, with the hope that it will kill as many Israelis as possible. And Israel has been up to the challenge up until now. It's had the, the technological edge. And yet it is blamed for these conflicts, even when it doesn't start them. And even when it responds in a surgical way to the um, unguided rockets that are fired into its airspace. So it's a remarkable dynamic, one that the media gets very wrong time and again and it's just surprising to me that this is the case. Um, you'd think that after so many rounds of Gaza wars, and given the fact that the media just saturates this space, that it is just overwhelmingly covered by hundreds, if not thousands of journalists, you'd think that some people would begin to get this right. Before we get more deeply into the media, uh, coverage and bias or ignorance. Uh, it, I'm curious. Gaza's a poor territory. It's got an unemployment rate of around 50%. How can they afford to recreate its military, expand military? Where does their money come from? Uh, that's That's... That is the ultimate question here, and it's the, the reason why these wars continue. Um, look, there are, I would say, four patrons that we should be looking at in terms of uh, how Hamas replenishes its coffers, how it replenishes its arsenal, um, and also how it's able to function around the world with a certain amount of legitimacy. Uh, that all comes from, it starts with Iran. Iran is the foremost uh, sponsor of Hamas. It also happens to be the foremost state sponsor of terrorism in the world. Um, but it's been providing hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas over the years. Uh, it provides the training for Hamas's commandos. It provides the uh, know-how to the engineers that are building the rockets inside the Gaza Strip and storing them and firing them. In other words, none of this happens without Iran. And um, it's one of the, you know, one of the reasons why I think it's so alarming that the United States has been um, 
trying to re-enter the Iran nuclear deal of 2015, the goal for the Biden administration is to provide billions and billions of dollars in sanctions relief and other financial incentives for the Iranians to re-enter a framework that, you know, for a short period of time will constrain their nuclear ambitions. But at the end of the day, it's just going to fill their bank account so that they're able to sponsor more terrorism. So Iran is is one contributing factor and um, and really one to keep a close eye on. But there are a couple of others that I think deserve, um, well, let's call it dishonorable mention. <laughs> um, one is uh, Qatar. Uh, Qatar is um, the, it's long been one of the ATMs for uh, Hamas worldwide. Uh, Hamas has um, a number of senior figures that live in Doha. Uh, by the way, Doha is home to a number of other terrorist organizations, Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, I mean, you name it. Um, it's a sort of a safe haven, um, a rogues gallery uh, of, uh, of, of terrorists. And it's just amazing that the United States continues to treat the Qataris like a military ally when this happens. Uh, But at any rate, the Qataris are very active in the Gaza Strip. They're constantly providing additional assistance. And that assistance is ultimately diverted. The money is earmarked uh, officially for the rebuilding of the Gaza Strip. But as we saw during this most recent round of conflict, a huge amount of cement and building material doesn't go above ground, but rather it goes below ground to build tunnels, commando tunnels that Hamas seeks to use in um, the, in the event of a ground invasion by Israel. Um, now, in addition to Iran and Qatar, there's also Turkey. Turkey is a country that is I mean, remarkably, it's part of NATO, and it also is a significant supporter of Hamas politically, diplomatically, and yes, even financially. And then finally, there's the country of Malaysia, which is a jurisdiction that um, where we've seen actually a number of Hamas weapons developers study to learn their craft and then ultimately to come back to the Gaza Strip to deploy it. But um, at the end of the day, if what you're trying to do is to stop these rounds of violence, the goal should be to stop these four patrons from supporting Hamas in any of the ways that I've just described. Unfortunately, that's not the policy of the United States. We appear to be engaging with all four of these countries and treating them almost as, you know, allies. And that includes Iran right now, as we look to try to get back into that Iran nuclear deal, that deeply flawed deal. It is, I would say, probably one of the gravest mistakes that the Biden administration could make. Uh, You say that you followed uh, Hebrew and Arabic media. Do you speak those languages or understand them? I do. My, admittedly, my my Hebrew is better than my Arabic, but I'm able to pick up, um, you know, uh, quite a bit from from both. Um, I spent the majority of my time watching the Israeli press, only uh, because in certainly looking at Al Arabiya, it was actually really interesting. That was the channel that I watched in Arabic. Um, it was interesting. They didn't cover the conflict as much as they did in the past. Um, it used to be that whenever these wars would erupt, you know, you'd see the um, the images running like 24-7. And it was all kind of part of a narrative that Israel was the aggressor. But this time around, Al-Arabiya spent less time 
um, rehashing that video. And I think it, it was a reflection of the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the Abraham Accords that right now you're looking at this rapprochement that's taking place across the region that pragmatic Arab states, I would say, view Israel less and less as their ultimate enemy. And they see these conflicts as local problems between, you know, a terrorist group and a regional state. And so it was really interesting to see that shift in coverage as opposed to what I had seen in the past. Um, And then from the Israeli side, you know, I was watching two channels in particular, Channel 11 and Channel 13, which I can get just on my Apple TV, which is really was remarkable to be able to do that um, and to watch it, you know, around the clock. Um, And you could just see the discrepancy between what was being reported in Israel, the actual damage that was being done. Uh, inside Israel as a result of Hamas rockets and, and other violence. And then, you know, you flip to American channels, CNN, MSNBC, even Fox, and the simplistic nature of the coverage was really what struck me, that they weren't talking about this as a proxy war uh, between Hamas's patrons and Israel. They weren't looking at it as an asymmetric conflict between a terrorist group and a legitimate state. They just went right back to that old, tired narrative of Palestinians and Israelis just don't like each other and they fight, Um, which really, I have to say, doesn't begin to cover it. Not what we've seen over the last, you know, 10, 12 years. The conflict has really shifted. You don't see war between Israel and the West Bank. You only see it in this enclave that is controlled by Hamas. And Hamas, as we've just discussed, is financed by four other countries, supported by four other countries that have an ax to grind with Israel. And failing to acknowledge these simple facts, I think, ultimately undermined the coverage here in the United States. And I would just say, at, at, at minimum, it was at least reflected in the regional coverage, which is one of the reasons why I found it so much more important to watch um, those regional broadcasts. So you explain the gap between reality and reporting in the Western press as primarily due to ignorance and laziness? Um, you know, I... I I, I don't know if it is ignorance, and I'm not sure that it's laziness. I think there are editorial choices that are constantly being made. And, you know, in some cases, I think the choices that are made by reporters in the Gaza Strip are made because they understand that Hamas is the sovereign and that there are certain things that they cannot report if they want to continue to work out of this terrorist enclave. And, and so what, I think what that happens, what happens to a journalist, uh, a reporter, or even a citizen who is critical of the Hamas regime? Well, the citizens take the brunt of it, right? I mean, they are the ones that can be described as traitors um, or, or worse informants to Israel. And we've seen actually people um, you know, having their having rope tied around their feet and dragged through the streets of Gaza um, on a motorcycle, you know, and and basically they're they're just driven around until they die. 
um, it's tortured. And we've seen things like this happen in the past um, in the aftermath of war. Um, and, you know, one gets a sense that this is, you know, the kind of brutal nature of Hamas politics in the Gaza Strip. Um, for journalists, it's probably um, a little bit less severe. But there's, I think, a question, which is, do you want to try? Do you want to test the system? And one of the things that we, you know, we've seen in the past, there was a journalist, um, his name is Mati Friedman. He's based out of Israel. And he actually wrote an article for The Atlantic some years ago where he accused the Associated Press of deliberately ignoring rocket fire that was taking place in the vicinity of its offices. Even, even though the AP was basically being used as a human shield, um, the decision was to not expose that and to not complain about it. And um, the I would say that the implication is not that the AP is complicit, but that it is just simply not being truthful about the environment in which it works. And I'd say this happens a lot in terrorist areas, terrorist controlled areas, and sometimes even in war zones, um, we see it where, you know, people are at the whim of their patrons, you know, or at least their guarantors. And um, it's unfortunate that I think this is what happens. But even beyond that, you know, I think the decisions to not look at the patrons of Hamas, to not look at the sources of its weapons, to not look at the sources of its funding, and to blame Israel for conflicts that it didn't start. Um, you know, what I think it does is it, it just reverts back to an overly simplistic narrative that does not fit what we are witnessing on the ground. And, you know, it's about um, editorial choices. It's, I think, perhaps a reflection of what journalists and um, editors think will sell in the United States or in Europe. Um, but I also think that there's a certain amount of, um, um, let's just say, intentional animus toward Israel. And, you know, there are some people who would say that that is anti-Semitic, given that Israel is the only Jewish state. There are those that would say that, um, you know, that it's a reflection of an international system that has been influenced by, you know, Arab states that have been hostile to Israel for many years. Whatever the reason is, we continue to see these mistakes being made, these intentional omissions, this intentional um, narrative, which I think is highly problematic. And ultimately, if you're trying to end these conflicts, um, we're going to need to get to the core as to why they happen. And that will start ultimately with the media and as I mentioned, I think the media until now has failed. While uh, Israeli civilians were being attacked with missiles from Gaza, uh, some of its own cities experienced riots. What would you say is the was the connection between the two kinds of violence, if there was indeed any connection? Um. So, you know, it was interesting when I speak to Israeli officials when these wars erupt, um, I'm always sort of trying to pick out themes. I listen for um, things that 
maybe I, I listen for concern. I listen for surprise. And I will say that the um, riots that took place in, in what Israel calls its mixed cities, cities where um, Arabs and Jews largely coexist and get along quite well. We saw these riots erupt and it was a real cause for concern. It was probably something that Israel was not prepared for. Among all the surprises that Hamas had in store, um, this was something that the Israelis were not ready for. Um, I, do I think that Hamas um, coordinated it? I, I don't think so. Um, I would say that um, Israel has a lot of work to do in terms of understanding why these riots erupted. Some of it has to do, I think, with um, how much is invested in infrastructure, but some of it um, may have something to do with external agitators. Um, one of the things that I mentioned in the book, and I, there's, I, I, I cannot say that there is cause and effect here, but I would say it's certainly worth exploring. The government of Turkey has spent a lot of time and effort um, and money investing in Israel's Arab communities. And um, I believe that at least part of their intent is to sow unrest and to sow anger um, at Israel. And I would just say that for Israel's, you know, immediate challenges, trying to figure out how this all um, came together, how these riots were organized, if in fact they were, trying to deconstruct that, I think, is going to be really important. But probably most important will be for Israel to engage in dialogue with its Arab residents. You know, we're talking about probably 20% of the country is Arab. Um, they um, enjoy better rights in Israel that they, than they do in probably most other places around the Arab world. But that doesn't mean that things are perfect. And I think Israel does have a lot of listening to do. Its leaders need to better understand how those riots erupted and what can be done to prevent them in the future. And that might mean better allocation of resources. It might mean more participation in, in government when that's even if that's even something that's in the cards. I will say, by the way, that um, in the aftermath of the war, um, the, you know, the new governing coalition in Israel actually came to include an Arab party for the first time. And I think it's probably a good indication um, that, um, you know, that Arabs are being representative in the cabinet, in the decision-making room. And uh, perhaps that could begin to contribute to the settling of some of these, um, these challenges. Your, your book, Gaza Conflict 2021, um, takes the reader back through the various peace processes uh, over decades and the uh, hideous terror attacks they engendered, suicide bombings of cafes, pizza stores, uh, city buses, as well as houses of study and worship. Israel's defense included... Uh, and relied heavily on building walls and now even underground walls. Uh, Egypt, which also borders Gaza and is similarly uh, vulnerable to their terror, uh, it also does what it can to keep Gazans out. Can you explain why the international press is unsympathetic and opposes the country's efforts to defend themselves against terrorist attacks? Um, you know, I wish I could 
um, explain fully why that's the case, especially because Hamas is identified as a terrorist organization here in the United States um, and in much of Europe and around the world. So I don't think there's a whole lot of dispute about the nature of Hamas. Um, and I don't think there's a whole lot of dispute about the way in which um, it smuggles weapons is illegal. Um, how it treats its own people is horrific. Um, and, and the way it diverts resources from the people is equally horrific. And so there's, I think, plenty of reason for the world to condemn Hamas uh, and to support uh, countries like Israel and Egypt from allowing the group to thrive. The problem is, is that I think there's, you know, there's roughly 2 million people in the Gaza Strip. It's an area around the size of Washington, D.C. It's small. And the people there are suffering. And so I think, you know, the international community likes to point to the suffering of the Gaza people, but they don't blame Hamas for it. They blame the neighboring countries saying, well, these are countries that can improve the situation in Gaza, but they're just not. Um, This, of course, ignores that a huge amount of humanitarian assistance comes into Gaza on a regular basis, uh, facilitated by um, uh, Israel has a... uh, their, their military as a division uh, that is involved in the humanitarian transfer of goods. It's called COGAT. Um, and it, it oversees, you know, thousands of trucks bringing in goods on a regular basis. What is ignored is that Hamas diverts a huge amount of that material. As I mentioned, they use it to, I mean, they will use um, sewage pipes to build bombs. They will use cement and other building material to build um, uh, tunnels. Uh, and it is just simply um, unconscionable that they continue to do this at the expense of the two million people living there. But really, they understand at the end of the day that they won't be blamed, that Israel will be blamed, and to a lesser extent, Egypt will be blamed. And so they can continue to do this with impunity. And finally, John, what should be done about the giant threat in the region, Iran? It's militarily involved in Syria, Lebanon, in the sea, in cyberspace, and of course, in other parts of the world too. Yeah. um, Look, the Iranians have built a war machine and it stretches from Iran through Iraq, through Syria, through Lebanon. Um, And certainly it, it touches in Gaza as well. Um, The goal is for Iran to establish regional hegemony, and they're on their way to doing so um, through asymmetric means, through Shiite militias and terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And their their plan is working. I mean, they are drawing closer and closer to Israel um, in, in an attempt to build up for what would be sort of the worst war I think we've seen in, in since the beginning of the Palestinian Israeli conflict, the Arab Israeli conflict. Um, and by the way, I would say the Palestinian and Arab Israeli conflict, it's really not the dominant nature of, of the violence that we see in the region. It really is the Iran Israeli conflict. And you can really see how that is evolving. Um, the Shiite militias that Iran has deployed, they're there to strangle the countries of Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, but they also provide Iran with the ability to arm up and to prepare for war. 
potentially with Israel, potentially with Saudi Arabia or other places as well. Um, but this is ultimately their goal. Um, Iran is looking to wage a brutal war against Israel, and Israel is fighting it on a regular basis in an asymmetric way. Um, they call it the war between wars. It is an ongoing campaign to hit uh, to hit Iran um, when it's smuggling weapons into Lebanon or into Syria. Israel will strike in the middle of the night. Israel's carrying out cyber attacks inside Iran to try to derail its nuclear program. It's assassinating nuclear scientists. It's destroying um, naval vessels um, off the Persian Gulf or in the Mediterranean. So all of this is happening as a means to forestall the brutal war that is likely to come. And um, look, at the end of the day, my sense is that um, we need to see uh, support by the West for Israel to defend itself in this way. Um, this ultimately is the goal that unless we want to see Iran emerge as this hegemon in the region, unless we want to see it emerge as a nuclear power, that Israel needs to be empowered because it's the only country that is trying to battle Iran in this space. No one else is actively doing so. And so if the U.S. is not interested in fighting a battle in the Middle East, then it's going to have to identify um, a responsible actor to do so. And Israel is really the only capable one right now. And so when I look at the answer to some of these challenges, um, I would say that not getting into that nuclear deal again, not giving Iran huge amounts of money, and also empowering Israel to target Iranian aggression wherever and whenever it, um, it emerges. This is, I think, the key to these battles moving forward. I don't see that as the current policy. Um, under the Biden administration, certainly not coming out of Brussels, not out of Europe. Uh, but this is ultimately what needs to be done if we want to see fewer conflicts along the lines of what I described in my book of uh, that conflict from May of 2021. Jonathan, your work goes a long way in helping us clarify this complicated Middle Eastern region. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. If you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the Van Leer series on ideas wherever you find your podcasts.